Every year around the 4th of July, I give my State of the Union address. I'm going to try to do that again today. Uh, I'm not one who says very much usually about the political arena or certain issues that are happening. I will allude to them. Sometimes I feel something's important enough to speak to, but I'm forced on this day <laughs> um, because I've uh, held myself to that standard, and it is the 4th or today the 5th, but surrounding the 4th of July. Much prayer has gone into this message and the direction that I'm taking with it today. Uh, we're living in a really uh, very interesting time as a nation, and it is the church that has been called upon to respond in its culture. And so we're going to today talk about what I believe is the most important question. I think this is part of the problem is that we have forgotten what the most important question is. It's easy to get into a debate, into our opinions, into um, our minds, to the heart of the matter. And so I'm going to challenge you today to get to the heart of the matter, because there is a heart of the matter. And um, uh, there are three kinds of Christians. There are those who are new. They may have just come to know Christ. They know very little about the scriptures. Uh, they may have grown up in church, but really haven't learned anything or haven't even tried or they've just heard what they've heard. They really haven't studied for themselves. There are those who um, maybe grew up in church, maybe even was exposed to the scriptures, but have been at a distance. You kind of heard this here and there and drawn your own conclusions. That's, that's pretty typical, actually. So, Or you have just come to Christ and you just don't know a whole lot. And so you're fresh, you're learning, you're growing. That's an awesome place to be. Number two, there are those who are old. I'm not talking about your age. <laughs> I'm talking about our, um, our length of time as a believer. And that can be good because we can be full of wisdom, experience. We can know a whole lot. The trouble is that the older we get as believers, we can get stuck in the rut. We can carry baggage. Here's what happens. You know the story of the, 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 the pilot. When he first sets out, he knows the general direction he's going, and he can set it on autopilot. But he can't keep that, that autopilot. He, he can't just let go and not think about it again. There are adjustments that have to be made all along the way. And of course, they've got all the instrumentation, et cetera. But, but, the, but the thing is, they've got to constantly adjust the direction because if you get off, you know, a millimeter and you're hundreds of miles away, you're probably going to land in the wrong state, maybe the wrong country, because you'll continue to move away if you're going to continue in that direction. And so as believers, um, it's really important. Here's what I found is that in my life, I can be true in an area and there's another area. There are always other areas that I'm getting off track just a little bit. And then later I have realized, man, I'm, I'm in the wrong place here. I've got to adjust and get back. All right. And then there's the third kind. And that is the kind that I want uh, all of us to tap into today. And that would be the New every day, Christian. New every day. He makes all things new. Every morning, his mercies are new. And so I'm, I want to be that person who, you know, gets up in the morning and, and kind of cleans the slate and says, all right, today I want to be the original. Today I want to go back to the real believer. I want to go back as close to Jesus as I can and, and, uh, and the apostles. And let's go back and read the first few chapters of Acts and, and let's, let's read 
the scripture as if I have never read it before. That, that's the kind of Christian that I believe God is looking for because I haven't arrived. There's no one here who has arrived. We as believers are growing. We're learning. And as we, we go, here's, here's what I find. There are like 20,000 different directions that my life is moving in at once. And some of those things are going straight forward with God's purposes, what he wants, how he wants me to live. And then other parts of my life, I can get distracted or I get on a trail that's not too far from his purpose, but it's just far enough that as I keep going down the road, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I get further and further away from what God really wants in that part of my life. That's, so it's really important that I every day start over again. It's really important that I come back to home plate on every day. And so that's a every week, every month, every year. There ought to be seasons where we go through personal revival and come back to where I need to be in my heart because I can, I can get somewhere in my mind and totally justify where I am in my mind and then, and then realize that my heart is way off base. And you can't live Christianity out from your mind primarily. You can't do that. If you do that, you're in trouble because it's a relationship with the Father through Christ who is living himself out in and through you. It requires the heart. It requires the heart. So there's a heart thing here that has to happen. Now, because we get off track, we need to, this is why there is a body of Christ. And as you read through the New Testament, Boy, you should read it the way I'm reading it right now. I read it, I'm reading it straight through, not, I'm starting with Acts, so I'll go back to the Gospels after this, but I'm starting with Acts, and I'm reading one of these, um, read through the Bible, uh, not through the Bible, but um, chronological order Bibles. There are two or three different kinds, or probably more than that, but I'm reading through one where I'm actually in Acts, and so when Paul you know, gets to a point where he writes a letter, they'll throw the letter in right there, and then they'll come back to Acts and live a little more out, and, and that's the way it's, it's played out. So I'm actually trying to, this year, captivate the heart of the early church and, and what they were dealing with and, and why it was so hard. Paul comes, it seems like he has to talk about some of the simplest things, things that that you and I take for granted, we think, well, that, of course, that's right or wrong. Or, but Paul has to come back and explain it because, because they are dealing with a new way of living in a culture that is the antithesis of where they are now. And so, so read, read the Bible that way as if you've never read it before and see what's there and why it's there. Um, the title of the message today is What America Needs. And I, I prayed this. In fact, I hope you read my blog. Listen, I just blog. If you don't read it, I'm really going to get upset. So you've got to go online. You've got to find my blog and read it, okay? Um, I probably spend more time doing that than almost anything else because I want it to say exactly what I want it to say. And last week's blog, or the one that's out right now, on what America needs, and this coming week, which will be a surprise, uh, then uh, on Tuesday, then um, uh, go read it because, because I'm very specific in a couple of things, and it will help me explain. But as I, as I get into the blog, I'm, what I'm saying, what I'm trying to communicate is that what America really needs is a demonstration of Christ. That's what America needs. You can say a lot of different things about what we need, but notice that ties in. I know that's part of our mission statement. What America needs is a demonstration of Christ and his kingdom. Now, I know if you haven't been around for a while, you may not understand the concept of kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? Uh, let me comparatively present this. There is an American culture and there is a kingdom culture. It's two different cultures. 
The thing of it is, Jesus said, I'm not going to take you out of the world. I'm going to change you from the inside out. And you can't be a part of the world, but you've got to live in it. In fact, Paul made a real distinction between how he spoke to the church about sin and how he spoke to the culture. Totally different. Totally different. And so, so what is the kingdom culture? Because ultimately, the purpose of God's way of living, God's principles being, being established in my heart and lived out by his presence. The kingdom culture is a culture of Bible, yes, but it's Bible lived out in my life. Kingdom culture really is like this. It's Christ in me, Christ in you, working together because we are the body of Christ connected to one another, Christ living himself out through us to the world around us. You know that little scripture where Paul said, um, Christ in you, the hope of glory? We have, we have totally missed the context because we're thinking that that phrase, well, if you lift it out, can think this way, that it means that Christ in me is my hope of glory. And that's not what it's saying at all. You go read the context, read the whole sentences. Here's what you'll see, that he was talking about the church's impact on the culture around it, the church among the Gentiles. And he said that Christ in you, he was basically saying, is the hope of glory for the Gentiles. Christ in you is the hope of glory for the people around you. They don't have a direct connection. They don't have the grace of God in its fullness. And so Christ in you is the hope of anyone else discovering the glory of God. That's what it's saying. And so, so there's, a, there's a need for us to come back to that every day. There is a culture of the kingdom that, that transcends earthly cultures. Boy, go with me to India next week, and, and you'll find a completely different culture than this culture. I mean, it is so different. I feel like I'm on a different planet. And yet, the, when you're around the people of God, what you're going to discover is that the kingdom culture shows up. Even though their influence is not largely from Americans, their influence is from people in India who have, who have become uh, teachers and pastors and church planters. And so they're in their culture. They live in their culture. They sing their songs. They dance their dances. They, they are in their culture. But the kingdom of God comes out the same as it does here. When I'm there, it's immediate brother to brother, brother and sister. Because the kingdom culture is the same. It doesn't change. But what it looks like, what it looks like in the culture doesn't change. But lived out in a culture here versus someone else means I've got to deal with different things. And having to walk that out sometimes gets very confusing. I'm going to give you an example, and I am tipping my hand on my uh, blog this week, so I'm going to tell you this. But read my blog anyway when it comes out Tuesday. And push like so I know you are. <laughs> and so uh, um, years ago, um, I, we had a, a, I've, been, I've done a little television here and there. And in fact, for several years, I was doing uh, a program in North Carolina in, in the region that we lived in. And, and then had two programs. The second one was with a, uh, a friend of mine, Garland Hunt, and uh, he was a black African-American, moved to the Raleigh area, started Raleigh International Church. And we connected among the pastor's groups where we were meeting, and we decided to do a television program together called The Gospel in Black and White, okay? It was awesome. The Gospel in Black and White, and so, um, you know, we live in, in, that's in the South now. And so that, that, uh, that was, 
that was a challenge at times. First time I ever got hate mail. Now, I've gotten some pretty stiff letters from people over the years, but I got actual hate mail from this program. And so uh, what we would do is that we would pull out the newspaper at the beginning of the program or talk about something that was current in the news that had to do with racial issues. And then about a third of the way, halfway into the program, we shifted and asked the question, what does the Bible say about this? Or how does the kingdom of God respond to this? And it was a challenge. Uh, um, We did not answer as a Republican. We did not answer as a Democrat. We simply said, here's a problem. How would the Bible address this? And we had Democrats and Republicans uh, sending us, not not all of that was hate mail, but we did get some hate mail. And and so we simply looked at a a pure uh, kingdom culture within the American culture. How do we solve this issue? And, uh, and so, um, so that whole issue of the Confederate flag, because we're North Carolina and South Carolina's had that flag flying for a long time. Now I'm a Southern boy. I'm, I'm really Southern to the core. I just, I try not to let my accent get too revealing at times. Okay. So, uh, (laughs) but, and, uh, and so, you know, you may be wondering what I think about the Confederate flag. Well, he didn't even realize. I mean, I brought up the subject. He didn't even know what I was going to say. And I took people back to the Scripture. Now, not everybody knew the Bible, but I took to the Scripture where Paul is talking about uh, whether they should eat meat, sacrifice to idols or not. And I said, you know, I, I know there are actually some of you who see the Confederate flag as just a thing of history, or you identify with it because you're from the South, and it's a culture thing. But look, that symbol has become an offense to our brother. And I said, it's a, this is not a moral issue. It's not the American flag. We're talking about an historical flag that has become, and even at that time, was flown by many over the racial issue. But especially now, And I can give you story after story after story of things I've seen that you just would not believe associated with that Confederate flag. And so I said, you know, brother to brother, Christ, Christ in me says, take it down. You're an American. You have a right to own it. You have a a right to have it. You have a right to feel about that flag, what you want. But, But at a state capitol, and it has become an offense. This was years ago. Take it down. And see, you may agree or disagree with me, but, but that's looking at how the Bible deals with an issue that has become an offense. And so this is the kind of thing we did, and, and we got love and hate on both sides. What does America need? What America really needs is the salt and like people, people who are the salt of the earth and are the light of the world. Now, I'm going to read in just a moment Jesus dealing with his culture and knowing and helping us to know how to respond to it. I look at, um, I look at our culture and I see from how far we've come you know, America really was founded on Christian principle. Ninety-seven um, percent is is you know uh, of the of the original uh, Constitution signing, Declaration of Independence signing uh, uh, signers were actually Christian. Proclaimed it. Many of them preachers. Uh, most of them boldly um, declaring their Christianity. Um, And so many of our principles were founded on that. And if you'll let me give you a quote here today, this is from John Adams. He said, we have no government arm. This is John, now he was the second president of the United States. And a few years later, he was speaking 
at an event, and he made this statement. We have no government armed with the power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. It's really important to understand that, that America is not the kingdom of God. And you may think, well, that's, that's, you know, that's simple, isn't it? But what I, have, what I have seen and feel among us at times is that we've equated the two, and that's a problem. It's really important, very crucial that you understand this, that America in and of itself is not the kingdom. It was founded on kingdom principle. But a nation is not in and of itself saved until the people are saved and living that out. Do you see that? Nations rise and fall. Really, the question is not so much where has America come? The real question is what happened to the people of God? Where did the people of God get off track? Somewhere in this, it's interesting because Michael Cotton, who was here last week, he and I talked very little because we were headed in different directions with my mother, having just gone into the hospital. And so we only spoke for a few minutes between services. Uh, and uh, there was a moment down front in one of the three services he spoke in. And I don't even know what brought it up, but he turned to me and he said, you know what we're going to discover? We're going to discover that what God is after right now is not just looking at where America is, but the church is going to have to turn around and see where it is. Because, because Jesus actually came to the people of God first. Did you, did you uh, uh, realize that Jesus said that he would not go to the Gentiles? That he came to the Jewish people? Why did he do that? For one thing, there was unfinished business of him being the savior of his people. But the other is the same perspective that Paul had of, of the body of Christ in his culture. And that was that the hope for the culture was the church. It was how the church was living that became the issue. It was the heart of the church and the church's ability to to walk in the fullness of Christ and then become the demonstration for his culture. That's how a culture changes. And if you think that if we started out with such influence that many of our laws were written, much of what we did in the beginning was based on, and I'm not going to go as far as to say all, but, but there was much laid in place because of our of the heart of Christians who were involved at the time. And yet, with that in our hands, the body of Christ, the church, has largely come inside of its walls and, and kind of closed the doors. We've hidden ourselves. We act like Christians at church, because it's easy to do that. But when we get into the workplace and we're with our families and we live in our neighborhoods, we have largely disengaged and pulled ourselves away so that the culture has been left unto itself. That is the condition of the church and of the country. That's why we are where we are. It's because we have relegated this into a, well, if God wants it, he'll make it happen. When God actually put us in place to be the salt and the light that would influence lives, change people from the inside out. That's what makes, what makes a, a, a Christian, what makes a nation a Christian nation? I mean, is, is really the goal to make a nation a Christian nation? Or let's go back to what Jesus said. Jesus said, disciple, make disciples of the nation. And then what a nation becomes will take care of itself. We've gotten away from discipling the nations. And because we're not doing that anymore, we've actually relegated the process to a whatever comes will come mentality. 
And this is what we have, is a nation that largely doesn't really even know Christ, a nation that is pulling away from the church, not back to it. But it's because we have pulled away. We have disengaged. We've not wanted the relationships. We're pretty happy with our relationships with one another. That's really where we are. That's really why we have come to this place. So before we look outside the doors, maybe we need to pull a mirror on the inside and take a look at our own hearts. How can we get there? How can we get to that place where we're no longer engaged with the world, where we no longer love the world enough to roll up our sleeves and serve. And if we're, if we're, if, if, uh, if we're persecuted, we're persecuted. But the love goes beyond that. All right, let's hit the scripture. That was a long introduction. John chapter eight. John chapter 8, starting with verse 2, is one of the wildest scriptures in the scripture. This little section of scripture has been said to have not been there in the original. There are two original manuscripts, I don't know if you realize this, and it was in one but not the other. It actually showed up in like six or seven different places in some of the manuscripts. The style is written even a little differently. And so what they're saying here is that there's no doubt because it showed up in so many places uh, in one of the manuscripts, there's no doubt that this was an event that happened. I mean, there are actually several thousand copies of it. There's no doubt that that this is an event that happened. The 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 uh, uh, that's really not the issue. Uh, where it should land in the scripture because of those different manuscripts, then uh, they're not sure. But this story is one of the most powerful stories. We're going to dig a little deeper and see a couple of things today. John chapter eight, verse two. Now, early in the morning. He came again into the temple. Notice he was in church. (laughs) And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Now realize, they're not in the new covenant yet. They're still living in the old covenant. This they said, testing him. Wonder how that was testing him. See, for some reason, by this time, they were beginning to understand that Jesus' way of handling an issue was different than even their own law. See, that that was a problem already. They had seen this with the way he handled the Sabbath. They had seen it with other issues. And so so they're watching him now, and they have purposefully brought a very um, uh, obvious sin in front of him with a very obvious scripture in the law for him to have to deal with in order to, in effect, place judgment on this woman. And so Jesus did what he always does, the exact opposite of what they thought he would do. (laughs) And they might, it says, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. He must have been really frustrating to to the Pharisees. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. We know this as cast the first stone. And again, he stopped, he stooped down, he wrote on the ground, 
Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, it's amazing, isn't it? He's just still on the ground, looking at the ground. And, you know, he says a couple of things and everybody starts walking away. And he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The light of life. There's several things about this that I want you to see. First of all, realize that what Jesus did in this moment with one person surrounded by the Pharisees, with a group of people watching in the temple on one day in history a couple of thousand years ago, what he did to impact the one person's life has had an impact on eternity for so many people. When Jesus was engaged with changing the culture, he always brought it back to changing one person's life. He always understood that the change of a society would come about by the change of people in that society. It was a hard thing. He will always come back to the heart. Jesus will always make it an issue of the heart, especially the heart of the person. Here's what he had. He had a woman who had been caught in adultery. She was before him guilty. It does not say that she came repenting. It does not say that she came, you know, knowing what she'd done and, and she deserved what she got. And so, you know, it, it, it doesn't say anything like that. She was caught. She was brought. She was placed before him. Maybe he had a sensitivity as to where she was in her heart, but we're not told that. She simply was caught. Jesus is looking at her. He's looking at the Pharisees, and he stoops down and starts writing. We don't know what he wrote. We kind of think we know because of the impact. Surely he was writing down other sins that identified every man in that group. And so as he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And so eventually they all walked away, realizing that they too could be judged. How did he know that? He may have written some, you know, one of their names you know, beside one of the sins. I don't know. But he, he knew to go to the heart. Then Jesus said a couple of things, things that I think actually clarify his attitude toward helping a person, helping a culture. Jesus walked in with being God. He was God. He's holy. There's no question about righteousness in his heart and who he is. There's no question that he doesn't just uphold some righteousness. He is righteousness. He's holy. Yet he says to her something that's almost disconcerting to the Christian. He says, uh, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And then he said, neither do I condemn you. And even when I say that, what some are thinking are, wonder where he's going to go with this. Or, you know, what's he going to do with that? Well, first of all, let me say, that is real scripture right there. Neither do I condemn you. Now, let's understand what that means. How about turning with me to John chapter 3, verse 16. John 3, 16, you know that scripture? And then we're going to read a few verses further and maybe discover something that we haven't put within the context of our thinking, all right? John 3, 16, for God 
so loved the world. Thank you, Jesus, for that. That he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's the goal right here. He does not want us to perish. In eternity or on this side, he is trying to save us from perishing. And he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, most people stop right there and draw, we draw our own conclusions about what that means, that he did not condemn the world. But let's continue to read. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he who has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. See, here's what Jesus is saying. And this is why the law was given in the first place. Man needed to come to the realization that there is a condemnation that comes with sin. The condemnation was already here. The condemnation of sin was already present. We bring condemnation on ourselves because of sin. Adam and Eve showed us how that was done. And so Jesus comes and he comes into our world on the planet and he says, I didn't come to condemn the world because those who do not believe in me are already condemned, he said. So really what Jesus is saying is, I don't have to come with a condemnation attitude. I don't have to come to bring condemnation on anybody. But everyone needs to realize that there is a condemnation already present. I'm here to do something about that. I'm here to redeem. I'm here to help people be saved from the condemnation. That's my purpose. That's my goal. Everything I do now here is the demonstration in the culture. Here is the demonstration of Christ in his kingdom. Here's how Christians ought to be acting, is that we come with an attitude of, not just an attitude of, that is right, that is wrong, you're condemned, you're going to hell, whatever. The, the, the attitude that Jesus has is, I'm here to save you. Look, that woman could respond any way she wanted. She could walk away from him and do nothing about what she heard. She could absolutely walk away and not receive his love, not hear what he said. She could do whatever she wanted from that point. But what Jesus did for her in that moment was that he cut through all the condemnation and came straight to her heart and he said, neither do I condemn you. I'm gonna get to the next part. Neither do I condemn you. The condemnation was already there. He's saving her from it. He did not come to condemn her. We have to have that attitude. We cannot walk into our culture with a condemnation attitude. When we do that, we lose people. There are people look, I know none of us want to admit it in our world, but we're all facing the emptiness of our souls. Every person on the planet is having to face the emptiness, the lack of abundant life, and the condemnation that is constantly there. It is the enemy's biggest tool with non-Christians and Christians alike, condemnation. So they really need condemnation. That's what Jesus didn't bring it because it was already here but he's here to bring life. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Then he said, go and sin no more. You know, I never really use the word sin a lot. 
And I want you to know that it's not because I don't believe that there's sin. It's not because that I think preachers not ought to preach about sin. In fact, I'm not even sure why I never, I use it. You hear me talk about sin, but not like I haven't done a lot of preaching on sin per se. And part of the reason is I, I live in this little bubble that just thinks every Christian already knows, you know, that when you come to church, that you understand what sin is. I mean, I, that's what I think, but, but I, want, I want to clarify a couple of things here. Jesus had no problem calling her adultery sin. And you may think, well, that's an obvious one. Well, give me any point in history, and I'll show you where things you thought were obvious aren't obvious. And we as a culture have changed so much in the years that things that used to be obvious are no longer obvious. And I can name four or five. I can name several sexual sins that have been walked in as a culture that, you know, we kind of didn't say a whole lot about, and we just didn't know what to do with it, so we just kind of let it happen because we didn't know how to respond to it. Am I right or am I wrong? Are y'all quiet because you're asleep or you just don't know what I'm going to say next, okay? All right. All right, so, so listen to me. Um, so I thought it was a no-brainer, but I'm going to say it. This is a faith statement, a statement of faith. Marriage is between a man and a woman. I, I don't want clapping or anything like Just listen closely because the next one might get some of us here. Marriage is between a man and a woman, and sex, sexuality, within the purpose of God is within the context of that relationship. Period. I thought that was understood. Now listen, I'm a pastor. I've been working with church life for a long time. And I've had many people who have, you know, either they've been living together, so they're having, they're having a sexual relationship outside of marriage. How have I responded to that? Some of you know exactly how I've responded to that. Some of you know because of family members or whatever, and you know how I've responded to that. And it's always been without condemnation, but with the graceful ability to share what would be a whole lot better, what God had in mind, and then encouraging you to do it the right way. And behind the scenes, I've seen a lot of people turn and do it the right way. It's been amazing. So my heart is not to condemn, and that should be our heart. Our heart should not be to condemn because somebody's doing it wrong, all right? Our heart is to find a way to connect. When, when somebody comes to me and says, I want you to do my wedding, then that gives me a, you know, a platform, doesn't it? And so I'm able to talk to people from heart to heart, show them what God's way is and what would be a whole lot better. So let's talk, how, how can we make this happen? Not everybody totally agrees or you know, does things the way I want them done. And, and that's, that's been a hard, difficult road at times, but that's the heart. And that's the same with, with, uh, with other sexual sin. You know, sexuality now in America is just, we can go like 10 different directions right now and talk about different kinds of sex now. Come back to the simplicity. There, there's no issue here when it comes to the scripture or the heart of God or Christ and what represented. There's no issue here as to whether something is sin or not. Sin is clear. Anything outside of the marriage relationship is an, an alternative sexual life outside of that. The Bible is pretty clear that it's sin. It, the scriptures um, on, uh, well, any of them, the script are we can go and find scripture after scripture. If it's homosexuality, there are many scriptures about that in the Bible. You, you cannot ignore that. It's there. The question is how we're going to 
Serve people who need Christ. That's the question. So we don't come in and beat people over the head. We don't come in with a condemning attitude. But is it sin? Of course it's sin. That's not the issue. Jesus said, go and sin no more. See, that might be, it might be something else in your life. It might be pornography. It might be something else in your life. It, it might be seeing things you ought not to see, talking about things you should probably leave well enough alone, trying things you ought not to even be thinking about. Because lust and the passion of, of life will take us in places and we'll begin to justify and do things that will lead us down dark paths. And so Jesus was saying, I don't want you to live in darkness. I want you to live in light. If I can bring you to the light, then you're going to discover what I came to give you. John 10, 10 said this. This is Jesus talking. I can quote it, but I'm going to have to pull it up here just to make sure. Oh, here it is. John 10, 10. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That is the goal and that is the heart. I'm going to shift gears in closing and just give you the story that you already know. But I think it's a beautiful picture of what really a demonstration in our culture as to how the believer can affect the culture. I know um, I mentioned it last week because I I was just so hot about it last week. I I said something during communion. Um, because I couldn't, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't let go of it. And it's also in my blog, this whole story of the nine people in a Bible study in a prayer meeting at church. And listen, most prayer meetings are about nine people, okay? And, uh, but that's the most powerful place on the planet. Nations are being changed. People's lives are being uh, sought after. There is a a spiritual dynamic happening through the small prayer groups that's literally arranging the uh, scenarios around the globe. And so this one was happening in Charleston, South Carolina, and in walks a young man confused, not knowing really what he was doing. And he walks in and he, you know the story, sat through the prayer meeting, even felt a little love, he killed all but one. What happened after that has just blown my mind. And I'm saying, God, give us more of it. Because the family immediately, within hours, the family stood up and said, we forgive you. Do you know how hard that is? I mean, it sounds nice and Christian. Do you realize how hard that is? Do you realize how hard it is? He will have to face the consequences. But they, from their heart, did not condemn him. They actually prayed for him that he would be saved. That is a powerful thing. More of that, more of that coming out of church life. More of that coming out of the believer. More of that coming out of our mouths when we're talking to each other about it that we would look at a world that is in desperate need and realize that what's needed is forgiveness, love, not condemnation, light, being shown the way, relationship, so trust can be developed so that we can talk about these things and start moving in the right direction. That doesn't mean that everybody's gonna get it or that you'll not be persecuted or that you'll not have to walk away so as not to get into a big argument. I'm, I'm not saying any of that, however, our call is to be Jesus on the cross who said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's the call. Now, listen, somehow we're going to have to translate that in our families. 
at the workplace. Somehow, that whole picture of the woman caught in adultery, somehow I've got to become Jesus to the world like that. That's the heart change. Something's got something's to happen in us. It's going to happen in America. Something's got to happen in the heart of the church before any change is going to happen in this nation. This is how we got away from it. It's the only way we'll get not just back to the original, but further into what God's calling us to be as a people of God and our influence in a nation. That's what's going to change it. It's not laws. Change all the laws. Make them all righteous. That will not do one thing. If you haven't understood that yet, you haven't read your New Testament. Change the media. Make them say exactly what you want them to say, but that will not change the heart of a nation. That's going to change the heart of a nation is, is the body of Christ living it out from day to day and changing the one person's life that's in front of you that day. That's what will change a nation. We got to live that out. We've got to live that out. We've got to come out of our cocoons and become people again with people. We've got to live that out. Let's stand together. Mm. Father, I just thank you for your grace and mercy toward all of us. Lord, we need mercy. We need your grace. We need a heart change. Lord, when we, when we say revival, we're always thinking about somebody else. Lord, revival begins with each of our own hearts. And so, Lord, help us today to simply pick up a mirror, a spiritual mirror. May it not be our eyes seeing, Lord, may it be your eyes seeing. Let us not just see us, Lord, but let us see who you are in us and call that person out. Lord, call us out to be the people of God. Lord, we praise you and thank you for what you've given us You've given us the light of life. Call us, Lord, to live that out in a way that it will permeate and take hold again and influence a culture that's so desperately in need of that demonstration. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you and have an awesome week.